on the way up to Pucker, the freeway was still on fire. A new sense of urgency, purpose. We just chipped in wherever we could and whatever we could do. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Got children. Going to a I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top like something. She did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. James Medley is an Australian Army reservist. He served for many years with a number of domestic and overseas deployments. I wanted to share James's story with you as it's a great example of how men and women who don't have the military in their lives full-time still contribute to the service of their country. I'm Alex Lloyd in Melbourne today with James Medley. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Melbourne, northern suburbs. My dad was a policeman and my mother was a nurse. I have an older brother. Uh, my parents were divorced, so my mother was a single mother bringing us up. What did you like to do as a child? Hobbies, interests? Well, I liked to jump around the house playing army man. I was a scout, cub scout, that sort of thing. Did a bit of uh, cricketing in my uh, sort of early teenhoods. About nine years old, we moved from the northern suburbs into the Dandenongs, which is uh, a bit more of a forested area. That's where my outdoors interest peaked a bit more in the scouting movement. Do you have any military history in the family? Uh, it skipped a generation of my father. He was a policeman during the Vietnam War. However, my grandparents on both my uh, mother and father's side, they both served throughout World War II. In what capacities? Dad's side. My grandfather was uh, in the RAF. He enlisted in 1942 as a ground crewman, mechanic, serving in 464 Squadron in the uh, Mosquito Fighter Bombers through Europe from March 1945 to the end of the war. My mother's father, he was in the Polish army from 1937 through to the end of the war as a cook and a baker. However, at the outbreak of World War II, he was captured by the Germans. He was interned as a prisoner of war in uh, Buchenwald concentration camp. And was he there until the Russians liberated it? Or? Uh, the Americans actually liberated that one. Okay. So they liberated that as they were pushing through sort of the, um, the Frankfurt area, as it were, towards Weimar, a place called Weimar, which was kind of in vicinity of where Buchenwald is today. After the war, he, uh, he obviously married my grandmother. He happened to be working at a bakery, a German bakery, just after the war. They were short on a baker, and my grandmother's parents run that one. And then after that, basically, they got married and then migrated to Australia in 1950. Did your interest in the military first come from this family connection to it, or was it a natural boyhood interest in plain soldiers? Just the fascination of all the stories regarding, obviously, the experiences that they have faced that sort of thing, that really tweaked my interest. Obviously, growing up, you had to do little army men type thing. You used to play with those sort of things. I used to make model aeroplanes. I uh, still do to this day to a degree. But uh, yeah, just those stories and reading the old books and looking at the pictures, that sort of thing, that really tweaked my interest, especially, obviously, the Australian military history as well. Why do you join the army? I guess it's a greater purpose than yourself in regards to a sense of duty, service, Probably going to sound a little bit silly, but uh, in the 1980s, they used to have a TV ad with the Army Reserve, and it was played to the 1812 Overture. They used to get me going. <laughs> yeah, I used to 
carry on and have my little jumping up around the room sort of thing, playing army men. Da, 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 da. Yeah, that one. It's stuck in my head. Yeah, you can YouTube that one. It's still on the... Uh, it's got the cannons at the end. And... Yeah, they, they basically go off to all the music and stuff like that. Yeah. When did you join and how did you find training? The 17th of August, 1999. Okay, so that was a period just prior to us going into East Timor. So originally joined the reserve so then I could have a go, see what it's like. And then if I'd like to make the move across to the regular army, I might do that later on down the track. And where was your first posting? After completing uh, basic training, I was posted to Melbourne to the 5th, 6th Battalion Royal Victoria Regiment based in Surrey Hills. It's an infantry battalion, so I was based as a rifleman. You post into the unit and then from there, you then go on to complete your uh, initial employment training. Once I completed that, that was a period of a couple of months prior to me getting on a course and completing that. Then you basically, you're deemed fully qualified, rank and trade, and then you're ready to conduct the training that um, they partake in and activities and that sort of thing. Did you have a role during the 2000 Sydney Olympics? Yeah, I was part of a, um, a search company that was involved with providing security for the soccer. Melbourne had uh, a couple of the soccer matches and they had to supply venues such as the MCG and also training venues and hotels for the players. So we had to provide um, vehicle checkpoints and um, sort of uh, visual security type arrangements for that. Was this kind of work engaging enough to think, yeah, I think I will switch over to full time? It was good to do the job full time for a, for a period of time. But as I say, at that stage, I was still in the reserve mind space because I still had my day job. And also I had my other interest outside work in regards to uh, girlfriend and family and such. What was your day job? At that stage, I was a uh, apprentice locksmith. However, that uh, didn't last too long. Basically, then I just started doing what we call super chocking, which is basically just putting your hand up for any uh, available work within the reserve community, extra days, that sort of thing that uh, may happen around the unit. Where were you when 9-11 happened? When 9-11 happened, I was... That was a Tuesday night. I remember it pretty good. I was coming home from the reserves after having a night of training. It was fairly late and I just happened to, I was still living at home at the time. I just turned the TV on as I would and um, starting to unwind and getting out of my uniform. And I just put the TV on and I noticed that um, I had CNN on TV and I didn't have CNN. I didn't have any Foxtel, but every channel had CNN on. And um, it was the, uh, the Twin Towers. Obviously, um, we all know what happened to those, but um, yeah, it was quite captivating. You already had a uniform on at that stage. Did you look at that terrible footage and think this might have repercussions that my country feels, that I feel? There was the likelihood in the background of maybe we were going to be doing something in the reserve, particularly. I remember going to a parade night in the subsequent weeks. Basically, we were told not to wear our uniforms to parade, just in case I know something untoward might happen. But uh, by and large, we were like, it didn't really... It didn't appear to you to be an immediate oh, we're going to war now, kind of hoo-ha. It was just, this is a terrible event, but it wasn't personal to you immediately. I kind of thought maybe I might have all of a sudden got myself front and centre into something, but at that stage, in the uh, the pecking order, as it were, where we are, it didn't immediately affect us in a great way. However, obviously, the repercussions could be down the track. Let's jump to your first overseas deployment, East Timor. Being a reservist, we had the opportunity to deploy to East Timor. Originally, when I first joined my unit back in 2000, uh, there was originally a, uh, a call out for members of my unit to go on a full-time service basis and then deploy as part of the 6RR battle group. And they were basically mixed in with fresh recruits, march-ins to the battalion, 
and they were interwoven within the battalion. Now, my deployment was uh, in 2002 to 2003. We were basically a independent company of the reserve that was basically picked up from the reserve world and meshed into the full-time battalion. And what was some of the work you're doing on the ground in Timor? Some of the work we did in Timor was basically when we first deployed in country, we were part of uh, an embassy security detachment. It was basically a platoon size type of type of arrangement. And we were tasked with basically manning the hard points on the embassy. I remember vividly the first time I rode in a helicopter. It was a Russian MI8 helicopter. It's kind of like a, a truck helicopter type thing. It's a very rugged and uh, robust thing. The vivid safety briefing by the crew, I believe they were Ukrainian, I think. These guys were had short sleeves. They had the white shirts with the captain little epaulets on their uh, uniforms, gold chains, gold teeth, smoking, aviator sunglasses, that sort of thing. Basically, one guy looked at us and he said, no smoking. And the other guy looked at us and he goes, we crash, we die. And that was quite humorous and uh, up we went. Did you interact with the locals much during that deployment? We did have two types of patrols. One was uh, what was called a blue hat patrol, which was like an overt patrol. So basically we put our blue baseball UN hats on and basically patrolled to an area and obviously everyone came out to see us. They knew we were there. Nine times out of 10, if like the helicopter would land on the landing zone, the kids would come out to meet us. And then obviously we'd pick up our, our gear and continue on our way. I remember vividly making um, a lot of paper aeroplanes for kids at one stage. We were handing out some leaflets. We were near this little school and um, I became quite the puppet master kind of, as it were, with all the little kids making paper aeroplanes, teaching them how to do that. And next thing you know, one would go on the roof and then the kid would come back and he'd insist I'd make another one. And that got a bit tired after a while. So I had about four or five kids all making paper aeroplanes on behalf of myself. So while I oversee that, but um, yeah, it was quite a good experience relating with the locals in that, in that, uh, that capacity. Are you finding it quite rewarding work. You've deployed overseas for the first time representing your country. I imagine that was exciting. It was quite exciting moving into the deployment, doing the job for real, as it were. And obviously overseas for the, well, it wasn't the first time overseas, but it was the first time obviously in the uniform overseas. It was quite exciting, obviously, when we got to phone home. Obviously, we couldn't say too much, but um, that disconnect, but, you know, the, the, the way we, you know, when we were overseas, we received care parcels and packages from home, which we you would hear over the years of, you know, during the wartime, people really related on um, getting that letter from home and that sort of thing. So you could really uh, relate to that sort of side of the, uh, the human aspect. What was next for you after Timor, James? After Timor, we came back in 2003. We were discharged from the, the regular army and then we basically picked up our lives in the reserve army, so back to the reserves. And that was basically when the financial year kicked over. And your next notable work with the reserves is doing domestic security operations in 2006 for the Melbourne Commonwealth Games. Yeah, that's correct. It was a similar sort of situation as the Olympics, so we kind of knew what to expect there. We were based out of uh, Point Cook in Melbourne at the uh, the RAF base there, and basically from there, same sort of situation. We uh, we had the um, the athletes' village, that sort of thing, based in Melbourne. So we got the search top to bottom of that, obviously making sure that uh, there's no nasties hidden anywhere and making it secure. And also the MCG, we got the search of that top to bottom again. Kind of the second time I've searched that thing from top to bottom, so it's quite a labyrinth of uh, rooms to go over. And what else is happening for you for the rest of 06 and 07, 08? After that, it was basically a lot of just training, weekends and activities with my home unit, promotion courses and such things like that. I was made Lance Corporal promoted during the games. And then basically from there, I pretty much took over the role as a section commander, commander of the troops when we uh, went away for weekends and such. To give the civilian listener a bit of an idea about what reserves life is like, let's ignore 
moments like the Timor operation or the games where things rev up a bit more, just the day-to-day, how does it impact on your calendar? What are the kind of exercises you're getting to do and that kind of thing? Typically, we'd meet on a Tuesday night, three-hour training block. For that, you'd probably go through a range of things, a little bit of PT, followed by some admin, and then you might do either some theory lessons in regards to uh, tactics and weapons and that sort of thing, or you might go into some more practical, some drills and that sort of thing, obviously weapons, and or you might go through some uh, maneuvers and stuff in the closed training area, that type of thing, followed by time at the boozer. That goes without saying. Yeah, well, everyone needs a bit of a, uh, a social sort of uh, switch I always leave events at the boozer off the record though. Around 850 defence personnel are committed to relief efforts following the Black Saturday bushfires on 7 February 2009. You were a part of that relief effort. Initially we were uh, gearing up to deploy to the Solomon Islands. So basically we had our first, uh, pretty much one of our first days of pre-deployment. We were bussed up to Pakapanyal on the Sunday just after the Black Saturday bushfires, so pretty much the day after. And uh, on the way up to Pucker, the freeway was still on fire and uh, we pretty much knew straight away we were going into something that may eventually turn into something else. After we got to Pakapanyal, we were forced assigned to the bushfires effort. You've been in the military 10 years by this point and you're seeing now some truly confronting action on the home front in that sense with this bushfire. How did you react to that? It was a very surreal thing. Everybody, pretty much as soon as we got the word, we were doing the relief effort. So pretty much everybody just jumped to it. The guys just sprung to action as a new sense of urgency, purpose. We just chipped in wherever we could and whatever we could do. We weren't firefighters per se in regards to that, but we were able to provide manpower. So we set up a lot of tents and um, logistical sort of support for the follow-on guys to come through and obviously uh, fight the fires and obviously have an area to go to once they uh, needed a bit of downtime and that sort of thing. And for overseas listeners, the Black Saturday bushfire is Australia's highest loss of life incident due to a bushfire. 173 people died, 414 injured, and as many as 400 individual fires were recorded over that weekend. It was catastrophic and still remembered with heavy hearts today. Yeah, there were trees sucked out of the ground and birds dropped out of the sky. There were houses that were knocked out and all around there was nothing except for green grass. Yet the house was destroyed and there was a clear 50 to 100 metres around the house and it was ember attack. James, tell me about your time in the Solomon Islands. Very much the deployment I had previously in East Timor put me in good stead for that one. So I pretty much knew what to expect. I had a few friends that had already uh, deployed on earlier operations to the Solomons. So having those stories and also my, my experiences prior to, I was able to relate that quite well. We were there initially to support the local police in order to get them to do their jobs. We're not forcing them to do their jobs, but basically ensuring that they are able to do their jobs is probably a better way of putting it, but... Um, Can you explain the context behind that? Okay, so the it was a police-led operation in regards to the federal police were reinstalling law and order and mentoring the uh, local police, the RSIPF, Royal Solomon Island Police Force, and we were there providing the backup for them. So the first layer of, of response would have been the local police, followed by the, the federal police, and we were the last here in the chain. At what time period are you over there? Between February and September of 2009. Tell me some highlights from that first trip of yours to the Solomon Islands. While we were over there, we were vehicle mounted. So typically a, a section I was in charge of, we'd go out in our car 
and we'd go for a vehicle patrol. Generally, we'd get a, uh, a brief to meet a local police member, a Solomon Island police member at a certain police station. So we'd uh, put our provisions in our car, drive to the set police station and then wait for the member there. One particular moment we got to the police station, the member wasn't there. Shortly thereafter, we found ourselves in a police station with nobody present. So we had to hold the fort. The federal police member turned up for the patrol. He had to go get the other guy from his house in order for him to come to work. And then obviously we went off and did our job. A very particular highlight, my section was inserted on the west coast of Guadalcanal. We were inserted by vehicle and then we stayed in a village for approximately three to four days all by ourselves. So we were disconnected from the main base. So basically we're all up the river by ourselves and which was an interesting predicament. So basically I was pretty much um, in charge of our presence there and doing whatever we had to do there. We were supporting the local police in their follow-up cases. They were sent over into the outlying areas to do um, case follow-ups and outstanding warrants and that sort of thing. One particular instance, uh, we were gearing up for uh, to put our patrol together and I noticed one of our members, he uh, was late to our muster. He told me he lost his boots. They were nowhere to be found. And I thought this guy was having me on, looked everywhere. Turns out while he was sleeping on his hammock, somebody had come in and stolen his boots, one of the local kids. And then from there, obviously we did a roundup of the village. The village elders by that stage were a bit embarrassed. They managed to work out what happened. The boots, funny enough, happened to be on a banana boat three hours ahead of us and uh, on the way to market, basically from there, I believe the young bloke's dad then had to borrow some money to buy some fuel for the outboard motor to drive the boat to apprehend the guy on the way to market before the boots get sold at the market. Long story short, we got the boots back the next day. And you'll find yourself back in the Solomon Islands in 2013. I'm the guy that basically, if there's an opportunity for a deployment or a uh, exercise or that sort of thing, I usually generally put my hand up first and work it out later about all the logistics at the home front with the wife and the kids and that sort of thing. So basically, yeah, so I'm back in the Solomon Islands. We got a chance to deploy again. However, this one was the end of the operation. So basically, Australia was basically pulling out of the Solomon Islands as a military type of thing. So we're closing that side of the shop down. So that was an interesting, so basically, it was a total different operation from the previous where we were actively involved with patrolling and such. This one, we are basically um, maintaining that uh, that last resort, quick response force. And then once the decision was made to pull up stumps, we were basically closing down and um, turning the lights off, off the base, basically. So when you go back to the Solomon Islands, now you're familiar with the country, do you have more time to explore and get to know it better? We had a little bit more time off on weekends and that sort of thing. So we're able to, uh, in small groups, go out and uh, explore certain battlefields. There was an instance where we actually got a, uh, a battlefield tour guide coming out from Australia. I can't remember his name now, but he was quite, apparently he was quite reputable. And uh, basically he took us on a walking, talking tour. He had a little microphone, a little PA thing in his backpack, and he'd take us to a certain spot stop and get us all out there. And we'd appreciate the land of the scenery, areas like Bloody Ridge, Alligator Creek, uh, where the Japanese came ashore, attempting to um, push the Marines off their positions, um, where they all got mowed down, basically. There was a lot of uh, areas and, and hard fought grounds that you'd just pass by and wouldn't think two thoughts of it and uh, turns out it was a, a scene of a quite a ferocious battle back in the day. And there'd be some strong remnants of those battles lying around for you too, landing vessels. There's a group of islands called the Florida Islands just off the main island of Guadalcanal. We had a tour group go across on a small boat across the uh, Iron Bottom Sound which is a battlefield in itself. There's a lot of battleships that have been sunk pretty much at point blank range at each other. 
because battleships and you know they can fly quite a far distance, but uh, they were very close apparently. But yeah, we explored the Florida Islands and Tulagi, a place called Tulagi. That in itself had quite a number of broken, smashed up landing ships and destroyers and chopped down fighter planes and such. They were all over the place pretty much, yeah. And there was actually a quite a ferocious battle fought over a cricket pitch. The Marines at one side and the Japanese at the other end. You're very eager to serve your country and have these experiences, sure, that you want to fulfill the training you've received, but you also like contributing to the wider cause. I enjoy sort of imparting knowledge kind of thing on my younger soldiers and that sort of thing. So basically I like to train and mentor them for the things I've learned along the way. And also obviously the opportunities when they, they arise, I encourage everybody to partake in them if they're able to. 100% is a voluntary sort of organization. I mean, they want you to be there as much as they can. However, they understand that's obviously it's a, it's a part-time thing. Even though it's a part-time thing, you're still giving. And I think that's the important thing at the end of the day. Yeah. Post-Solomon Islands there, how are you feeling in your military career at this point? Are you content, fulfilled, or itching for something more? Post-Solomon Islands, so basically we're back to training. I'm kind of content in a way. I'm probably overdue for a next promotion. However, I haven't really been actively seeking it in regards to that because we've had a few more opportunities to deploy. So I'm more focused on um, doing the job and having a chance to and experiences to deploy and obviously um, contribute in that way. Well, the next year in 2014, you get to contribute in that way once again with the Navy in border security operations. Okay, so what it is, at that stage, it was a uh, tri-service deployment, so uh, Operation Resolute, it was called. We were trained uh, alongside our Navy and Air Force counterparts, and uh, basically it's a border security sort of role. That entails the Navy, if they were to intercept a boat, we would be in charge of basically crowd control on the boats while they maintain the seaworthiness of the boat and do what they have to do. And this could be foreign fishing vessels, it could be a piracy vessel, could of course be a refugee vessel it's any kind of foreign vessel coming close to our shores you're intercepting and clearing uh yeah that's correct it could be a number of those my personal role once again i'm like a team leader i was that deployment i was basically embarked on a navy patrol boat and uh i was in charge of a, a, a brick of four people two of those were army one air force and one navy member and uh, coincidentally, all of those, our first names all were James. So it was quite amusing when we met the, uh, the captain. Hi, my name's James. Yep, this guy's name's James also. Then there's uh, James. And then by that stage, we had to produce our IDs. And uh, then the captain was uh, sufficiently satisfied that we were correct with our naming and uh, introduced us, our crew, to their crew as the James crew. How do you find that very different experience of operating off a Navy vessel living on the sea? It was very interesting. We were posted to the patrol boat at the same time as the incoming crew. So we basically had a whole rotation, which was very good. So basically we assimilated into the crew very well. I enjoyed my time there. We spent approximately eight weeks at sea. So that was uh, significant uh, in regards to the amount of time we were away. A lot of people prior to posting to a boat were very anxious about the seasickness issue. So a lot of uh, visits to the um, regimental aid post to get uh, some travel calm and that sort of thing to, you know, to obviously offset the seasickness issue. And myself in particular, I had one night of uh, seasickness. However, it wasn't the first night. It was well into the trip when uh, the going got a little bit rough one night. And how is the inter-service tribalism? It's healthy, 
put it that way. Competition's healthy. Yeah, competition is healthy. But in regards to uh, the rivalry, we basically, I mean, we had a job to do and we all got on with it. And I was uh, going into that operation. As I say, I'd already been on a few, obviously, deployments with the Army. I was very interested to see how the other side do things. And so I went in there with a open mindset. And uh, I think it's all about the attitude you go into. And obviously, you do embrace what you're doing at the time. And obviously, you go into it as best you can. And once you're off the boat, you fall back into the regular pattern of reservist life. Yep. We go on to the training continuum. We have our ceremonial duties in regards to when April comes around. Obviously, we've got a lot of Anzac Day sort of activities where we have like ceremonial tasks we have to do. Generally, my battalion will uh, march down to the shrine on Anzac Day in, in, uh, in Melbourne. Other activities we may we may partake in is uh, like cataphyte parties, that sort of thing, obviously on dawn services and also lead up to Vietnam Veterans Day, that sort of thing. We might get a little job here and there that we have to provide a guard for and such things like that. Otherwise, yeah, our bush and... Um, and the leading and mentoring. Leading and mentoring, that's correct. Is there a particular Anzac Day or Remembrance Day that stands out for you? Well, Remembrance Day always stands out to me because it's actually my birthday. And also the fact that we deployed to East Timor on my birthday, so that was a kind of a birthday present from Army, so thanks, Army. You've given a lot for the country, almost two decades of service. How do you reflect on your time in uniform so far? It's quenched the hunger. I guess it's, it's fulfilled that boyhood dream that... Uh, <laughs> The sense of service, I guess, is what I'm trying to trying to get at. You know, I've heard stories of obviously the the generations of of my grandparents and um and people, you know, coming up through the 60s and 70s, that sort of thing. You know, yeah, the sense of service, I believe, is is the thing that sort of I enjoy and I reflect on what I've done. Well, James, I think you've done a lot for your country. Thank you for your service and for coming on Life on the Line. Thank you, Alex. Join the conversation on social media at LOTLPod on Twitter and at Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Recommend the podcast to your friends and subscribe to us in your podcast app. And sign up for our e-newsletter through the website. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget.